1: Joe Quinn, with me in the studio again this week are Neil Bradley, hello, and Pierre Descoudreau. Bonjour. This week, the topic of our show is, well, the title of our show is Hyperdimensional Planet Earth. From the beast Gevedon, to UFOs, to the Mothman and back again, throughout modern history, tens of thousands of human beings have reported seeing bizarre and apparently inexplicable experiences with otherworldly creatures. While mainstream science automatically dismisses such reports as a product of liars or the psychological system, the reports just keep on coming in, both from normal people who, far from seeking a moment of fame, are very often extremely reluctant to even speak about what they saw, and from people with impeccable credentials whose word, in any other circumstances, would never normally be uttered. So the question here is... um, Interference going on.
2: All right, you're listening to All Hit Radio, and it's 53 degrees at 13 minutes past the hour. And right now in our All Request line, I've got Mike Ledgerwood on the phone. Hey, babe, what would you like to hear? Hey, babe, I'm sorry. I can't hear you too well. You're going to have to speak a little closer into the phone. Okay, babe, what would you like to hear again? We are observing your Earth. Hey, Mike, I'm sorry, babe, but that's not on our playlist. And by the way, you sound great over the phone. Anyway, if you give us your request, we'll be glad to play it for you, babe. So let's hear it. We are observing your Earth. Ah, uh, listen, Mike, I'm sorry, babe, but we can't... And we'd like to make... I'm sorry, Mike, we... This contact uh, with you...
3: In your mind you have capacities, you know To telepath messages through the vast unknown Please close your eyes and concentrate With every thought you think upon the recitation we're about to stay calling occupants of interplanetary craft calling occupants of interplanetary most extraordinary craft calling occupants of of I'm
1: Okay, sorry about that interference there, folks. We, uh, we're back online now. We're back online. We seem to have some kind of a interruption there to our show. Um, actually, we're joking.
2: <laughs>
1: that, as some of you or many of you might know, was the Carpenters from 1976 and their song, Calling Occupants of Interplanetary Craft. And the reason we played that, uh, well, there's several reasons. One of them, which we'll get to, but... One of them is concerns the name of the song, Calling Occupants of Interplanetary Craft. And that phrase came from a guy named Albert K. Bender, who was the founder of a group called the International Flying Saucer Bureau. Uh, in 1953, on March 15th, 1953 to be exact, he and the other members of his group and uh, all of the the members around the world decided to have a contact day, which was a day in which they would attempt to contact extraterrestrials as they were understood to be at the time and are still today, I suppose. Um, This contact day was, as I said, March 15th, 1953, and they devised a message that people their members, and anybody else who's interested, uh, were, were to uh, memorize and then repeat on that day at a specific time around the world, and they give all sorts of different times when people coordinate to be doing it at precisely the same time around the world, and the, um, the message that they were to memorize and then repeat in their minds in a quiet place in their house, wherever they were, started off with calling occupants of interplanetary craft calling occupants of interplanetary craft that have been observing our planet Earth. We of the IFSB, i.e. the International Flying Saucer Bureau, wish to make contact with you. We are your friends and would would like you to make an appearance here on Earth. Your presence before us will be welcomed with the utmost friendship. We will do all in our power to promote mutual understanding between your people and the people of Earth. Please come in peace and help us in our earthly problems. Uh, that 's more or less what it was, and uh, everyone was meant to repeat this in their head having memorized it and to see if it could bring on the the space brothers to save us from ourselves the The founder of this group who, who promoted and devised this this uh, this project or this uh, this plan to try and contact aliens was um albert k bender he 's the author of several books one of them being flank saucers and the three men uh he himself obviously participated in this uh project and he describes his experience uh in his book um so he said but after the third attempt at writing the message calling on the space brothers that he felt a terrible cold chill Hit my, then my head began to ache as if several headaches had saved up their anguish and, anguish and heaped it upon me at one time. A strange odor reached my nostrils like that of burning sulfur or badly decomposed eggs. Then I partly lost consciousness as the room around me began to fade away. Small blue lights seemed to swim through my brain. I seemed to be floating on a cloud in the middle of space with a strange feeling of weightlessness controlling my entire anatomy. A throbbing pain developed in my temples, and I felt as if they might burst. He opened his eyes, and to his amazement, he seemed to be floating above his bed. He says, Suddenly I could hear a voice. We have been watching you and your activities. Please be advised to discontinue delving into the mysteries of the universe. We will make an appearance if you disobey. We are among you and know your every move, so please be advised, we are here on earth. this message uh, he sat on the edge of his bed grew sick his stomach and felt as if he had eaten something rotten Uh, that wasn't the end of it though a couple of days later he um, he started to uh, smell a a foul smell in his room again and um, three entities appeared in front of him according to him his temples throbbed and his body grew light he says um, the eyes of these Three figures suddenly lit up like flash bulbs, light bulbs, and all these were focused upon me. They seemed to burn into my very soul as the pains above my eyes became almost unbearable. So these three entities, this is a few days later, said to him, We feel that you are a very good contact for us on our planet of Earth. We have a purpose for being here and we will be here for some time yet. We must not be disturbed in our ultimate goal. We have found it necessary to go to great extremes at times to frighten off your Earth people, and it has resulted in their deaths. We also found it necessary to carry off Earth people to use their bodies to disguise our own. So, that's from Albert K. Bender in his book, and this was a result of him calling occupants of planetary craft, we can only imagine, you know, what other experiences other people had. Uh, As a result of this, uh, I suppose we can call it misadventure, Uh, but, yeah, so, you know, the reason we we, we started this way was because uh, there's a contrast there, obviously, between the Carpenters and um, their song, which kind of, I suppose, defined the the attitude through through several decades, I suppose, of the 20th century, from the 50s, 60s, 70s, and further on, uh, where people, or a certain section of people, for some reason, had the idea that aliens, and those who were, people who were were disposed to believing in them, or um, thinking about them even, um, thought that they were essentially benevolent, and that they would uh, come to save humanity. Uh, where this idea comes from is um, well, it's a topic for discussion to see where it comes from. But certainly, anybody who looks at the the, the, the topic of UFOs and um, strange phenomena, but particularly in relation to UFOs and so-called aliens and extraterrestrials, uh, will quickly realize that this is not a positive. Thing. This is not something you want to call, yeah. call on to... Uh,
4: it's generally to ill-advised call. to be calling down anything because, you know, you might regret what you were asking for.
1: Did nobody see Independence Day? Independence uh, when all those event. people on top of, the, top of the building and what happened to them when they were, you know, take me? Uh,
4: I think we have a good idea where this stuff comes from. Because that was, that was, that was a pretty common event actually. That wasn't a unique happening. Mm -hmm. I would say most conductee or contactee experiences where it involves the contactee then preaching a message to people is more or less along the same lines. The message is where Space Brothers, maybe they don't say that explicitly, but implied is that. And also they say that essentially human beings are endangering their planet. They're risking to their own planet We are here to observe and or to help you sort the problems out. And so this is where this meme came from. It came from people like this Albert Bender willingly putting himself forward to be a medium for a message he didn't understand.
5: Yeah, I think that this UFO and Adyen phenomenon has been growing so big it's present in every culture, every region of the world, middle in ancient time, modern time of course. For John Keel, there's more, in the 90s, there were more than 500,000 UFO reports, 500,000. The evidence are growing so big that we reach a point where it's impossible to deny the phenomenon, although it's been denied for decades. So now I guess a new strategy is being implemented, since it cannot be denied, it will be twisted, the existence of those phenomena will be accepted, but it will be twisted, instead of being something fundamentally negative, it will be presented as something positive.
1: Mm -hmm. So, it's alright, and we can go back to sleep. Just before we go on, I just want to mention in case anybody's forgotten that you are welcome, encouraged even to call in or write in via the chat room with your uh, ideally call in though with your experiences, your comments, whatever uh, on this particular topic, whatever you want to say or throw out there. Um, have you seen any UFOs or experienced any high strangeness? Yeah,
4: yeah, yeah. If you have sure. let,
1: let us know and we'll we'll discuss it. Um,
4: what about you you two guys have you had any um
1: high strangeness i have yeah um I wouldn't really call it high strangeness it doesn't compare with anything you read right uh, in some of these books uh particularly John keel's books and well, many others actually any any books that recount the first hand accounts of um experiences that people have had particularly uh is it third kind? Close encounters of the third kind is when you actually have some kind of a direct contact, rather than seeing something. I suppose I had a, a close encounter of the. It was probably the point five kind, not even the first kind. Um, I just saw. saw what I can, what is accurately described, what can be accurately described as a, a UFO, an unidentified flying object or maybe it was, it was more like an unidentified floating object, because it wasn't actually fl- flying, it wasn't me. Uh, it, was just, it was maybe 20 years ago, it was just sitting above a, a mountain, not a very high mountain, maybe 1,000 feet. Um, in bright sunlight, I was driving past in the car, I was in the back of the car, I was looking up, and uh, I just saw a small uh, kind of silver metallic ball, pretty much like a, a ball bearing, I mean, not quite as shiny just sitting uh, above the mountain. I couldn't exactly say if it was behind it or if you know what I mean exactly where it was, but it was high, t- higher than the mountain from my vantage point along the bottom as we were driving. And then it went out of view, and uh, I just watched it for a minute or two until it went out of view because we went around the side of the mountain. It was obscured. And then when I was able to see again where it should have been, it was gone. Um, but other than that, no, no glowing red eyes or... <laughs> Uh, hairy hands coming to attack me in the night or anything like that. I had a
5: very similar experience a few years ago actually. I was driving on the highway past uh, Toulouse in France and it was a on ball actually and I saw uh, a similar object silvery hanging in the sky but I was driving so I was busy it was on the highway I couldn't stop and uh, it was not moving so it was a plane, I guess. And when I checked again, it was not there anymore. Did you check up above? I could have been following you. <laughs> you laugh, but that's happened. I <laughs> know. No, no yeah. it was not this dramatic. Okay. Uh, I was going to see, unfortunately, unfortunately for the show, for the, <laughs> the dramatic depiction, but fortunately for, for me, because uh, indeed this is not a, something good.
4: What would you need, no, no you? Yeah, I had a strange one. So I was in Greece, and I was there for a few months. So we spent most evenings on the beach preparing a meal over a fire. So it was hardly any, in fact, no urban light. And it was a starry night every, every night. And the first, first time I said, that looks strange. One of the stars appears to be getting brighter. Mm. Huh. And it did that. It, it definitely increased in brightness in size I'm not so sure about size, but brightness, and then moved. It had been stationary. It appeared to either move downwards or away from where we were sit- sitting. I couldn't tell. But, you know, you just think, oh, that's interesting. Now, we were observing the skies, and we had seen a few meteors, um, like a few flashes of light, nothing mm. out of the ordinary. And we were also watching, and we could see sa- satellites. Which are- Once you start looking at them, you know they're distinct, they're very, very small small. and they go at a very constant speed the Mm. whole way across the horizon. So I ruled those out. We didn't think much of it, but then the next night, it happened again. And this time we only caught the, from more or less in position, we only caught the tail end, so the actual movement. And then it happened the third night and I thought, well, this is, hang on a minute. And from then on, we started paying attention. Looking up, because it happened at exactly the same time, and I started to look at my watch before, at 9.09 for eight nights in succession, I'm guessing for the first three nights the time was the same because it was around, it seemed around then, but about 9.09, 9.10 p.m., for eight nights in a row, this same thing happened. This bright light, as if it was just one of the stars in a fixed position, became much brighter
1: and then moved and faded away. But here's where we enter into a... One of the core problems of the whole UFO phenomenon. On that third or fourth night, whenever you looked at your watch, mm-hmm. and said nine o nine, then subsequent nights it appeared again at or you saw it again at nine o nine. Did you have any? Could you have had any involvement in the uh, in the recurrence of of that phenomenon because you had a an expectation because that's one thing that in the in the accounts of People's experiences with the uh, UFO, UFO phenomenon.
4: If I did then I had it with two other people.
1: All three of us. You were all expecting it? Yes. So well that would just make it more.
4: All expected and then all manifested it.
1: Well not necessarily manifested but all I'm saying is that the, the timing mm-hmm. and it happening happening at the same time could have in some way conformed with your expectations because there is evidence that and Keel, John Keel says this in his books that many of the people that he interviewed Said that their experiences led them to believe that what they were seeing, even if it was just a light in the sky, or maybe something more substantial uh, in terms of looking like a some kind of a craft or flying saucer, that they all said that it seemed to be alive, in, i.e., intelligent and alive. Yeah. Um, so, if that's the case, um, and there is evidence again of it kind of interacting with people. I mean, Keel himself. Uh, this is this is reminiscent of the uh, the movie Close Encounters of the Fourth Kind, Third Kind. Is it Fourth Kind or Third fourth Kind? Fourth Kind. The one from the eighties, right, with Richard Dreyfuss. Mm-hmm. Anyway, Close Encounters of the Something Kind, but the one where he's up in the mountain and they're playing. The scientists are playing the music and communicating with the spaceship. Third kind, I think. Oh, the third. Kind. Uh, Are playing the music and you know they're they're interacting with this. There's a communication going on. There's obviously the ship itself. Um, obviously you see aliens afterwards, but the idea from Keith's point of view is that this thing itself there was no there was no evidence from these people's point of view that there was any any beings or entities or humanoid forms or anything in it. But they got the impression that the thing itself was alive. Mm. What they were seeing, not that they were seeing a being, but that thing that the thing itself was alive. And Keith himself went up onto, this is around the whole Mothman uh, time in, uh, in Point Pleasant. He went up on hills or in the local area on several nights and flashed his flashlight. He always took a flashlight with him, flashed his flashlight at some of the, the lights and they responded. You know? So, um, and this is without there being any evidence. I mean, it's, that, that would lead someone to suppose that, well, there must be someone inside it. But what if there's not? You know I mean, what if the, what you're seeing, and this is Keel's thesis as well, ultimately after all of his research, his thesis at the very end was that this was some kind of an energy formation. I mean, I don't necessarily agree with him on that, and he also said that it was native to the Earth. This wasn't about anything being in space. Or um, So in that case, if it's some kind of an intelligent energy construct that, that you're seeing, then essentially, and if it's, you know, if it has telepathic capabilities, well then deciding that it's here at 9.09 every night would essentially be... Uh, we're communicating with it in that way and, and, and lead it to say, okay, I'll be back at 9.09 tonight night because you asked me to. Okay. well That's what I was saying, but, you know. I,
4: I didn't have any messages to give
1: anyone. No, you weren't calling any. Right. No. Interplanetary craft. <laughs> I was probably reading...
4: Laura's book, High Strangeness, at the time, among other uh, yeah. books on the topic. So I think I've been a tough target to bamboozle. Oh yeah? You were, you were quite... Uh, well, uh, yeah, I think, well, I think when people become aware of the scale of this thing and the way it's connected, um, you become sort of immune to it, at least in the way that
1: you're not white-eyed and bushy-tailed and yeah, you're totally you're open to you're it. You're far like. less likely to leap
4: to all
5: kinds of conclusions yes, that might endanger you or mm-hmm. others. It raises another interesting question. In John Keel's book, uh, A Complete Guide to Mysterious Beings, he reports a case where a witness saw an alien being and started a conversation with the alien being. And the alien being actually at first was surprised that the human witness could see him. And the alien being said that usually humans cannot see aliens. And they rarely can see them if they are less than 100 feet away. And he said, the aliens said, and that's why most observations occur during nighttime, because during nighttime their ships are glowing in the night, which is easier to see you start to wonder why most people cannot see those phenomena. And uh, one tentative explanation is that uh, there might be some kind of mass suggestion
3: mm-hmm.
5: or mass belief that tend to make us blind to something that is ultimately visible. So it will be the reverse from what some researchers say. Some researchers say, yeah, what do witnesses saw Were just a product of their imagination. But if we follow this line of thinking, this hypothesis, it might be the opposite. The phenomenon might be much more widespread than we think and actually the witnesses that report are only part of a minority of the population that is able to see what is hidden through suggestion or belief to most of
1: us. Or the alternative is that the people who see it are induced to see it specifically. Uh, in that sense, um, yeah, I don't think being able to see it makes you in any way special. No, I think, I mean, again, Kim talks about this where he says that um, the contactee syndrome, right, people who have experienced encounters with UFOs, is a fundamental is a fundamental reprogramming process. No matter what frame of reference is being used, the experience usually begins with either a sudden flash of light or a sound, a humming, buzzing, or beeping. The subject's attention is riveted to a pulsating, flickering light of dazzling intensity. He finds he is unable to move a muscle and is rooted to the spot. Next, the flickering light goes through a series of color changes and a seemingly physical object begins to take form. The light diminishes, revealing a boat, if the event occurs on a lake or a river, a flying machine of unusual configuration, or an entity of some some sort. But what's really happening? The percipient is first entranced by the flickering light. From the moment he feels paralyzed, he loses touch with reality and begins to hallucinate. The light remains alight, but his or her mind constructs something else. This could be compared with normal hypnosis. A hypnotized subject very often thinks he is fully conscious, but the hypnosis isn't working and he is just going along with the hypnotist. But when he tries to move or disobey a command, he is surprised to find he can't. The paralysis reported in so many UFO cases is really a form of hypnosis. We're so speaking now specifically about paralysis, but that will obviously extend to all other, theoretically, as a theory, will extend to uh, all other uh, symptoms of these experiences or what people claim to have seen. That it is all essentially, uh, Keel says, and I think he's kind of misunderstood in this, Keel has said that it's all a hallucination. What he's really saying he's not what he's not saying is that people are simply making this up like they're disturbed or mentally unstable, but that's something is projecting is hypnotizing people and projecting images into their mind. That suggests before that there is something there. Something is very actively messing with someone's head to make them see something that of of their choosing of the of the, the this force or this energy of this entity's yeah. choosing. Uh so
3: not,
4: not he extends it not only that, but he acknowledges that people have fired on, bullets have ricocheted off these things, and even then he would put that in the same bracket, that yes, it's material to your perception and it's interactive with something you did to it, but that doesn't change the fact that it's not actually there
1: in In in, in that form. In in the form that you're seeing it, yeah. Yeah. But then, I mean, you get into kind of you can get all sorts of theories that have nothing to do with UFOs here essentially in terms of the nature of reality and existence where, you know, well, we, we, everything we see is a projection of our own consciousness in the sense that it's, it's some kind of energetic structure, a construct around us and by the process of simply looking at and thinking, uh, you're projecting some kind of form onto your reality and in our sense as human beings, there's a consensus reality. Uh, And we all tend to agree that, you know, certain things should be a certain way, or maybe that's controlled in some sense for that to happen, Uh, where we all see reality in the same way. Uh, We all all see only a certain part of reality or see it in a certain certain uh, construct. It's,
4: It's unavoidable to discuss this topic without bringing it out to the broader
5: questions of what is real and what is not. Yeah, it becomes tricky if those beings... Manage to are uh, hyperdimensional, swing from one side of reality to the other side of reality, They're able to control human minds, to create memories, to alter senses, to uh, read minds, to move back and forth in time. It becomes a very topito- tricky topic, but even more interesting one.
1: Okay, we have a call here, so let's go ahead and take it. Hi, Paula. What's your name? Where are you calling from?
0: Hi, this is Genevieve. I'm calling from the Midwest United States. How are you guys?
1: Hi, Genevieve good. Hello, welcome to the show. Hello.
0: Well, yeah, I decided go to go ahead and I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. Um, I went ahead and decided to call in. Um I haven't talked publicly about what I saw this past summer with anyone, so I'm a bit nervous about it. Um I've had instances of what I think were high strangeness my entire life, Um, but nothing like what my father and I saw back in mid-September. We were outside sunning and doing puzzles and reading books, and I kept looking up because I wanted more sun. I was checking out, you know, the sun-to-cloud ratio, and I looked up all of a sudden and saw this gray blob, and it had no definitive structure or point of reference I was sitting in a chair, so I had a point of reference. And without taking my eyes off of this gray blob, I said, Dad, do you see that? He's also sitting in in a chair, and he had a point of reference. And he said, I do. What is it? And we're still talking and looking, and we're following this thing with our eyes and not saying much. I think we were in shock. But we deduced afterwards, after about 15 seconds, it disappeared behind um, some alto-series clouds. And it was just there and then gone, 15, 20 seconds. It didn't, I mean, we um, were located under a flight pattern, pretty heavily flight pattern. The Indianapolis uh, airport has a huge flight pattern. There's lots of planes that fly over and around. And it wasn't a plane. It was not, like I said, anything distinguishable from anything in reality that I'm aware of. And when my father and I discussed it later, we were both kind of in shock and said, well, let's go, we wish we could go back and redo this. We wish we could see this thing again, but um, I thought maybe it uh, was something flying in between densities or that it had blocked its possible invisibility shield if there is such a thing, but um, that was my experience, and, you know, I didn't realize it, but a couple of the few days following this experience, I felt drained. I had no energy. I felt like absolute poo, and it turned out my dad was feeling the same way and we talked about it and we said, you know, I've done a lot of the research on the forum and read all of uh, Laura's books and I thought, my God, I wonder if it's connected.
1: hmm Well, so you're saying so it, was an amor- it was an amorphous blob, gray blob?
0: Yes. In an oval, uh-huh. oval circular shape. Um, it didn't really change shape or size, it, but it was moving... Um, it was moving from west to east and then it just disappeared behind the clouds after about fifteen to twenty seconds.
1: Mhm. So that in itself wasn't necessarily something I mean, it's strange, but you know, more of a curiosity I suppose given what you already know. Um but it's you said that you felt bad afterwards physically?
0: We did. Um, I did and you know, I didn't really connect it for about twenty four to thirty six hours. Um I just didn't have the energy that I normally have, and mm-hmm. when I spoke with my father, and he said, you know, I'm not feeling great either. We didn't know if we should attribute it to diet or maybe, you know, Wi-Fi, since we do live in a condo condoplex, but um, we've taken some precautions as far as all that, that goes, and we just couldn't understand why we were feeling so drained, um, so we did, you know, I did some more of the EE, introduced my father to the EE breathing program, uh, and after a while it seemed the more we acknowledged it, the better off we were feeling. The more we talked about it, you know, I talked about it with my husband and also told my mom about it, and things seemed to get a little bit better. I don't know if it's, you know, if it was my mind, you know, freaking out or some, you know, subconscious thing because I saw this or if I was actually being messed with. Same same thing goes for my dad.
1: Mm -hmm. Did you dwell on it? It's
0: a very odd experience.
1: Did you dwell on it in that that sense? Did you dwell on it? Were you worried about it afterwards? Did you let it kind of get to you in some way?
0: That's the the interesting thing. No. That's the interesting thing, um, because I was asked the same thing by my husband when I told him I didn't put two and two together as far as feeling bad um, Mm -hmm. until, I don't know, 36 hours, 48 hours later is when I put two and two together. Um, So no, I mean, we told told my husband when he got home about it. We talked about it a bit and talked about some of the things we've done in our research and what it could have possibly been. But we know about, you know, the whole psychic shielding. And um, uh-huh. I'm a smoker. I am a smoker. Thank you very much. And <laughs> um aware of my psychic hygiene, and, or at least I'm as aware as I possibly can be. I'm sure there's more improvements I could make. But no, as far as dwelling on it, I don't think I did. We talked about it. It was just kind of there. And we, we've we always kind of accepted that we don't know what's out there. Anything can be out there. So, and like I said, I had previous instances of uh, high strangeness, I believe to be high strangeness, um, unexplainable things from my past. Like I said, never a craft, possible craft. So, mm-hmm.
4: did, did this occur over a populated area? There were yes. other people. And do you think, did you notice or ask, did anyone else see it? Or did you hear any reports about anyone else seeing it?
0: Well, the issue was it was a um, like I said, a beautiful sunny day. Um, it was mid-afternoon during the week, so I don't know if anybody else saw it, and I didn't ask. Um, I'm sorry when you say populated, the city and the surrounding area is about a million people. Um, mm. But like I said, it was during the week,
4: okay, so it's very populated. So you you could reasonably expect if something was there that others would see it, right? Yeah.
0: Absolutely. But and that's you not know, to say that... What... Did...
4: Go ahead. Go
3: ahead.
4: Well, that's not to say that something was not there. I mean, right. there are fascinating examples of people reporting seeing a, a mile-wide UFO over the city of New Jersey. But only a small number of people. Well, in this case, the case I'm thinking of, just those two people watching it, saw mm-hmm. a judge and his wife. Mm-hmm. And no one else saw. I mean it was a mile wide. They guessed that based on where it was positioned between two mountains and so on. It was huge. It was over the city. There should have been thirty thousand oh. calls to the police. Mhm. Wow.
0: Yeah, I was that just in the recent article? Because I, mm-hmm. I read that. Just re- okay, okay. The one between two mountains and it was a mile it's supposed to be a mile wide ship, right? Yeah. See
3: yeah,
0: I yeah. don't know. Is it you know, a psychic connection between myself and my dad and whatever's out there, or what? Um, I'm trying, I would try and give you guys a, a reference as to, I guess if you were to hold a penny up at arm's length, mm-hmm. um, that's about the size of it. Mm-hmm. And like I said, I was looking up and just trying to see where when's the sun going to come back out. That's mm-hmm. the only reason I was looking up. Why? And mm-hmm. most people probably wouldn't have seen it. Beautiful, sunny day, they're going about their business, and
3: Frankly, a lot of
0: people just don't look up. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: Um, well, you well, know, I mean, you're aware of in the Caspian transcripts that have uh, been mentioned over over the years of kind of bleed through, what they call bleed through. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, that's always always one to. Uh, to consider, um, but also we don't know very much about if if something like that is happening and, you know, it's happening spottily around the world type of thing, that when it happens we don't know if there's any other effects other than seeing strange things, Uh, if it can in some way, you know, make people who who are, you know, passive observers or passively involved in it uh, feel a little strange, a little weird, you know? So. Sure i would i mean really we um, we don't have i suppose we don't have an have an answer as to what the direct connection might be between what you saw and uh how you, you and your father were feeling afterwards but um i think the most important thing is that you kind of store it away in your mind as a as a as an experience and um and and keep it in mind uh sure. and as, we were ta- as we were just talking before you called in. Uh, as we were just saying before you called in um, you know all of the evidence suggests that uh, there's nothing positive about any of these uh, interactions uh, there has never been anything positive uh, for anyone regardless, regardless of the few and lighters uh, that are out there who claim to have had wonderful experiences they're just it's like these screen memories based on the hypnotism, hypnotism effect that we've just described or that we that John Keel described so yeah, keep it in mind and just let it uh, make you more resolved to <laughs> keep these things at bay, you know.
0: Absolutely. As
1: the energetic okay. drain you,
5: you reported has been widely reported by uh, other witnesses of such an encounters. And um, from what I remember, two explanations have been uh, provided. The first explanation is that there might be... A, some energetic drain between the observer and the observed event and uh, the other explanation which is not mutually exclusive is that uh, seeing such an event shakes the very foundations of your uh, representation of reality so as such sure. it's, a, it's a major shock emotional shock and uh, as I say it's not mutually exclusive maybe both occur at the same
0: time you guys are absolutely yeah. right and same thing that the research said, was, you know, don't let them in and do not give them your energy. So, yeah, like I said, absolutely. you guys asked, no, no dwelling upon it and trying to move past it. And like you said, um, they are not beloved, benevolent.
1: Mm-hmm. And keep your eyes so, open.
0: Keep your eyes open. Well, thanks for taking my call, guys. It's the first time I've actually really, really spoke about it, and it feels good to get it off my chest.
1: Good. All right. Thanks, thanks for calling good. in, thanks. Genevieve. Thank you. Genevieve. All right. Thanks Take for So, um, yeah, just on this topic of them being benevolent space brothers here to uh, save the planet, this is something that um, idea that has been promoted, I think, since the very beginning of the whole phenomenon um, in terms of modern times, let's say, the middle of of last century, the famous... um, roswell incident uh, and everything that has happened since where it really came became became, became main, mainstream Um there are many religions have been formed based on the idea of angels or some kind of a messenger from god having inspired a human being to form a religion in, in, in many cases directly telling them that this is what they should do uh, because humanity was in trouble and that they were benevolent space brothers, quote-unquote, um, who, were, who were watching and guiding and this was part of the guidance to, um, to, to try and to help, help humanity. Uh, essentially, they always include prophecies of doom. If you don't get your act together, if you, humanity, do not get your act together quickly, then things are going go south very quickly. And there's nothing we can do about it. But we will do our best because we are, after all, the benevolent space brothers. There's um, author, Brad Steiger, for example, interviewed scores of psychics, prophets, and contactees for his study of this exact phenomenon. He wrote a book called Revelation, the Divine Fire. And he found that people claiming to be in communication with God, angels, spirits of the dead, and spacemen from other planets were all receiving essentially the same information. They all spoke of, of an impending disaster, things like this time, this time for your planet is crucial." But the problem is that the prophets and seers of the last century, that is the 19th century, in the 1800s, were all getting exactly the same spiel from the particular uh, kind of uh, beings or angels or whatever that were relevant to that time. Um, for example, William Miller. He was born 1782, died 1849, founded the Seventh-day Adventist in the belief that the world was coming to an end in 1843. There's also, obviously, a lot of people know where the messages delivered to the children in Fatima, Portugal in 1917. And there's also the, what's his name, John Smith, isn't that the guy, a very common name, the Mormon, the founder of the Mormon uh, Church. The Church of Latter-day Saints, yes, Mormons. Uh, that's pretty much the same uh, story there where he had a visitation from an angel, a messenger from God, who told him pretty much exactly what we just described. So the point here being...
4: Well, it makes you wonder right back through history. I mean, the prophet Muhammad was in a cave and is told all these amazing things based on some truth, but it ends up forming a massive religion.
3: mm mm-hmm. There
5: is an interesting account about malevolent beings under the disguise of saints and other prophets. It's an excerpt from uh, The Wave by Laura Lightyadzik. So let me read it. So the following is a condensed account of a case of demonstrably demonic infestation, obsession and possible ultimate possession which has been thoroughly documented and described in Demon Syndrome by Nancy Osborne. And here is how it starts. The room was bathed in hazy luminous glow, a strong scent of ozone, a gust of cool wind burst through the open window. It seemed peculiar to Anne, the moon shone so brightly on a cloudy night. She started to get up. Three dark silhouettes materialized as if entering through the open window. Her husband slept on, oblivious. Two figures stayed in the background, but a third drew nearer. He was taller than the other two. As the leader advanced, the two smaller creatures seemed to float in the background, shattering unintelligibly. The mysterious intruder didn't have a complete body. It was clothed in a black flowing shroud, with two arms and hands extending from the edges. But they were not human appendages, normal, regular arms and hands, but cloven ones like those of a pig. The teeth and mouth seemed inhuman. Four fangs protruded where incisors should have been, and rough, thorn-like projection were the closest semblance of human teeth. Its face had an almond shape and the skin was tinted pink but it was the eyes that frightened Anne most for they burned crimson. The creature had only a small amount of wiry hair that stood straight up and the ears were pointed. There were no feet. The thing moved by gliding and floating. And then the entity speaks. I have come to take you with me Anne ate You have been chosen to be one with us. Turn to me, and I will give you peace and comfort. (laughs) A sense of euphoria overcame her. It was a warm, calm sensation. She exerted effort and began to pray again. You and your damn God is no use to you anymore. Can't you understand? I've come for you. Relax and let go. You will never be sick or worried again. It is a place of peace and warmth, such as you experienced minutes ago. So let go! Let go! As the monster casual, it came closer and closer to Anne. Finally, its mouth opened wide and began to cover her face with his sticky mouth. The heat of its breath and the unbearable stench emanating from it seemed to weaken Anne. The being saliva felt ideously cold and slimy as the monster sucked her life, force out. And began to struggle violently, the creature hissed in disappointment. I'm your peace and I'm your strength. I will take care of you from now on. There is no God. All three entities left the bedroom through the bedroom wall and into the night. And in the chilling similarity you find certain images in common which have also appeared in other cases of both in abduction and demonic infestation an astral tip to some an astral trip to some unknown exotic place off fare she saw the egyptian parents it was then that anne felt that she was a part of eternity immortal safe happy and free from pain then in an interview with a member of the press anne heywood was trying to explain how the lady transported her in time to distant places she puts the robe on me, and their mind separates from my body. I can look back and see it lying there. Then we go up to the ceiling, pop out the roof, and fly into space. One night, the lady took me back in time. We were in a foreign country, and the people wore old-fashioned clothes. The lady took on the appearance of a beautiful woman in a blue robe. She performed miracles for them, and suddenly, turned ashen, and she has to be excused. A scream of pain was heard from the bathroom when she had taken refuge. When Anne came out, she was sniffling and holding her abdomen. The Lady had savagely attacked her for revealing that down through history, creatures like the Lady have taken the false Saints. They then use the gullibility of humankind to misguide and misinform people so that they believe they are seeing miracles performed and begged the newsman to delay to delete that portion of the interview well what, what, what about when was this 1950s it was written by Osborne, by nancy Osborne in 1982
1: so it's a okay. pre-1982 that's uh officially under the under the theme of uh demonic possession but it does tie in with uh, what we're talking about here in the sense that these, this UFO phenomenon, uh, is very much um, a part of, yeah. of human experience in the sense that the people that experience it um, are interacting interacting with it in a, in a direct way and therefore shaping it, albeit probably most likely under the influence of of the entity or the, the energy construct or whatever you want to call it itself i it's, you know because who i'm sure this woman Anne would not have created such a grotesque and horrible uh figure as Pierre just described because i mean seriously who would um willingly do such a thing um surely you know and this ties in with the idea of them taking on images of uh of of angels or saints or gods or heavenly beings to, as Pierre just described, manipulate and fool uh, masses of humanity and also to get people to form religions. So there does seem to be some element of uh, interference on the part of these things uh, uh, in in human history and, you know, giving it nudges in particular ways at particular uh, times in history. Uh, yeah. To, to, to serve their own agenda, obviously not from a not for a benevolent uh, reason, but to serve their own agenda. Um, there's um, there's another excerpt from the Caspian transcripts that I mentioned previously uh, that ties into this. It's from 1996, February 3rd, where uh, a question is asked about the bacabras or the goat sucker. Uh, this strange kind of a creature really grotesque looking with spines along its back and, and there's various different descriptions of it and this is another example of, of of the problem in terms of eyewitness reports of these things that it's subjective because it's being formed partly by the observer although it does this, this entity or being what they're seeing does have a reality in itself and I'll just read a little bit of it it says uh, okay can we ask about El um, Trubacabras? The answer was, review transcripts, window fallers. Now, window fallers are just a a term that was coined uh, to describe the appearance of strange and bizarre otherworldly creatures in our reality that have been reported throughout history. Um, So, next question was, is there some way to capture or stop this creature? Answer was, you do not yet completely understand all of the mechanics of the window faller phenomenon. The physicality is entirely transitory and partially dependent upon consciousness variabilities as well as expectations of witnesses. Yeah, I mean, there's other parts of that about. Okay. You know, they say, remember that window falling represents a cross-energizing of realities equally represented from each dimension in question. In other words, because the dimensional curtain has been torn, half of one and half of the other contributes to the whole reality. So I think in that sense, even though window fallers, as we've been um, describing them, uh, or as as they're talked about, um, aren't necessarily exactly the same as are part of the UFO phenomenon, uh, they are seen very often along with official kind of flank of certain lights in the sky there is also this uh, concurrence of strange creatures appearing around the same time but that's not not necessarily that doesn't necessarily mean that they are both uh, one and the same thing or part of the same thing because there's a, the idea of an opening being created for beings of another density let's say to enter into ours and as a product of that you get the odd weird critter fallen in at the same time, right? Or just a natural function of, of as has as been mentioned previously in transcripts and Laura has written about in uh, her book, High Strangeness, um, just a natural function of, of uh, bleed-through, of a flux between densities, uh, third, R density, third density to another density, fourth density, a higher density, where it's, there's a natural kind of a interpenetration there and sometimes it becomes more apparent yeah, it's um, <clears throat> the link between uh, window faller and UFO
5: phenomenon and be uh, some electromagnetic disturbances which might be linked directly to the window opening that both entities, UFOs, and loose creatures, window followers use. Here we have an excerpt from a uh, John Keel guide. So he, he reports uh, one of numerous stories and witness testimonies so here we have a sequence of interesting coincidences a local power failure on may 18 a creature sighting on may 19th and a UFO sighting on may 20. as Jan Fleming's Goldfinger remarked once his happenstance twice is coincidence three times is enemy action mm-hmm. so there, there, there might be a correlation yeah I think it's
4: I think it's better to emphasize the what does connect them okay them because if you get into saying well there are different intentions behind both so in the case of something like a window fall where something appears by accident as opposed to uh, something flying down to somebody's house Mm -hmm. and specifically calling the person out by name Mm -hmm. and communicating something with them not just John Keel, but there are other authors as well who've who've done looked back right back in time and taken you know reports. A lot of them, more modern reports, they've investigated themselves, and they've found the similarities to the point where uh, John Keel, Jack Vallee, and numerous other researchers are confident that what we're seeing today as the UFO slash alien phenomenon. Is just the form it is taking. It's mm-hmm. the same thing going on that would have gone on in older times. Yeah, of course. Yeah. your fairies and goblin stories and mm-hmm. other
5: creatures of the bog. Absolutely. Yeah. There might be a case where the link between UFOs, alien beings, hyperdimensional beings, and uh, strange creatures might be more obvious. Is the link between uh, aliens and uh, Bigfoot, as suggested by? Uh, John Keel who writes it almost seems as if animal earthly creatures have somehow been enlisted or drafted into service by the soc- sorcerers to carry out some mysterious missions and here is talking specifically about ABSM the abominable snowman and uh, what he suggests and I think it was uh, suggested in the transcript as well is that uh, Bigfoot are creatures within our third density world on planet Earth that have purposes, that are some kind of slaves for beings of a
1: higher density. We can, I'm not sure we can, you know, limit it to that because that has been said in the transcripts that they are slaves, you know, doing menial tasks on the planet but there are so many uh, accounts of encounters People having encounters with Bigfoot, where they do exhibit an extremely otherworldly uh, nature in the sense that, you know, they don't seem to be fully uh, physical in the sense. I mean, they appear, disappear, um, but at the same time, there are there does seem to be, particularly in the case of Bigfoot, there does seem to be some very uh, nuts and bolts experience that people have had with them. Um, there's one uh, particular. Account is actually it's it's probably the the most uh, shocking um, and startling account of a of a Bigfoot encounter that um, that I've ever read because usually you hear um, you know people just seeing them ambling through the woods and there's the there's the famous um, maybe they get a photo yeah there's the famous uh, movie. There's a famous movie uh, of of you know the supposed big Bigfoot ambling through the through the woods or you know just various greeny pictures or whatever. But there are a lot of other picture uh, accounts of people having more direct ones. There's I know there's a, there's a there's accounts of people having been having been carried away by them and spent a week in their company, um, but. There is one and I'm just trying to find it here that's why I'm taking so long uh, there's there's a story about a group, of, um, a group of miners who were out prospecting in in the u s and um, damn I'm trying to find it here
5: well there, there was also a Apparently, a corpse of a Bigfoot found and exhibited for a while during a show. I can, uh, I can read the report here. It's a report by uh, Ivan Sanderson that was uh, quite a, an authority concerning uh, strange creatures. And um, <clears throat> on May 3rd, 1967, the Corpus Delecti, one exhibit in a refrigerated van attached to a traveling show in the Midwest. Thousands of people paid 35 cents for the privilege of trooping through the van that season and the next. The barker outside made no effort to identify the creature, merely classifying it as another of nature's mysteries. The body was deeply entombed in a huge cake of ice with soft lights focused on it. People entered the van not knowing what they were going to see and if not knowing what they had seen. Finally, an apathologist... From Milwaukee, Wisconsin, Mr. Terry Cullen pays 35 cents, went into the exhibit, and then rushed to a, tel- to a telephone to call Evan Sanderson. So eventually, Sanderson goes to the place and uh, starts examining the body. It was shaped like an adult human male, six feet tall and covered with dark brown hair, three to four inches long. Visible portions of the skin were pale white. The hands were almost human except for thumbs, which were excessively long. The feet measured 8 inches wide across the toes. The little toes were almost as big as the others. Thick hair covered the feet. The hands and feet were more human than ape-like, the scientist noted. The left arm was twisted awkwardly upward and was visibly fractured midway between the wrist and the elbow. Giving the appearance of a sawdust doll. The right arm was twisted also with the open palm spread flat against the abdomen. Somebody had apparently shot it in the right eye and the eye was dangling out of the socket. It also seemed to have been shot in the chest and Uvalmans speculated that the creature might have been hit in the left arm when it attempted to defend itself. Its face had a large pug nose, more like that of a Pekingese dog, than a a Gorilla, with large circular nostrils pointing straight forward. The mouth was wide with no visible lips, and some small teeth were exposed. These were in no way similar to the teeth of chimps or gorillas. To me, at least, the most interesting features of all are some folds and wrinkles lines around the mouth, just below the cheeks. These are absolutely human and, like, and are like those seen in a heavy, rolled, older white man. The neck was so short sure that it hardly was a neck at all. The face and forehead were hairless. What?
1: That was a dead one. Yeah, yeah a dead allegedly. One. Allegedly. Well, there's a, there's a book. Uh, it's a very... Do you have a live one? A live one, yeah. A, more than yes. one. Uh, a very... On, a little known book uh, written by one of the guys who was a, had first-hand experience of this. It's appropriately called I Bought the Ape-Man of Mount St. Helens. Uh, this is a book by Fred Beck and his son or A. Beck. was published privately in nineteen sixty seven. Basically the two men uh were kind of prospectors or miners, um and they they were out in um on location uh on a small mountain called Pummy Pummy Boot with several other friends. Uh Early one morning, one of them came running to the camp and urged his fellows to follow him back to the creek where he showed them two huge, somewhat human-like tracks sunk four inches deep into the center of the sandbar. There were no other tracks anywhere nearby. Either whatever made them had a 160-foot stride, the men reasoned, or something dropped from the sky and went back up. So after they had built their cabin, because they were staying there for quite a prolonged a period of time, Beck and four other miners working their gold claim would hear a strange, thudding, hollow thumping sound in broad daylight. They could not find the cause, though they suspected one of their number might be playing tricks on them. That proved not to be the case, since even when the group were gathered together, the sound continued all around them. They thought it sounded as if there's a hollow drum in the earth somewhere and something is hitting it. I remember that description. Those were not to be the last strange sounds they would hear either. Early in July 1924, a shrill whistling apparently emanating from atop a ridge pierced the evening quiet. An answering whistle came from another ridge. These sounds, along with a booming and thumping, as if something were pounding its chest, continued every evening for a week. So the men were now thoroughly unnerved, uh, and they had taken to carrying their rifles around with them when they, when they went anywhere. Uh, so Beck and a man, the author of the book, and a man called Hank, were drawing water from the spring when suddenly Hank yelled and raised his gun. He looked up and saw on the other side of little canyon a seven foot ape like creature standing next to a pine tree. The creature was a hundred yards away from the men and it dodged behind a tree. When it poked its head around the tree, Hank fired three quick shots, spraying bark but apparently not hitting the creature, which disappeared from sight. So they returned to the cabin and, you know, discussed it with the other men there. And they all agreed to abandon the cabin, (laughs) a wise choice, but not, unfortunately, until daybreak, because it was late in the evening and they figured we're not going to go anywhere now, Let's wait till morning and we're out of here because there's hairy monsters peeking around trees at us that apparently can just appear and disappear at will. I'd get out of there too. Uh, They figured it'd be risky to stay on another night, but it would also be risky to try and make it back to their car in the darkness. So at midnight, as you might suspect, they were suddenly awakened to a tremendous thud against the cabin wall. This is a wood log cabin. Some of the chinking, that's the the wood slat or the wood structure of the cabin, had been knocked loose from between the logs and it fell on Hank. And he was pinned underneath it. Then as they... (laughs) As they heard it, they started to hear what sounded like many feet tramping and running outside. They grabbed their guns and prepared for the worst. Hank peered through the open space left by the dislodged uh, wood and spotted three apes. From the sound of things, there were many more. The creatures proceeded to pelt the cabin with rocks. Though terribly frightened, the other two miners were huddled in the corner in a state of shock. Beck said that they should fire on the creatures only if they physically attacked the cabin. This would show the creatures that the miners were only defending themselves. But within a very short time, the apes were, were attacking the cabin. Some of them jumped on the roof, evidently in an effort to batter us down. In response, Beck and Hank fired through the door. They were also forced to brace the door with a long pole taken from the bunk bed, since the creatures were furiously attempting to smash the door open. Beck and Hank riddled the door with bullets. The attacks continued all night punctuated occasionally by a, sh- a short quiet interlude. At one point, a creature reached through the, a hole uh, or a space in the log cabin wall and grabbed the axe by the handle. Beck lunged forward, snatched the blade part and turned it upright so that the ape couldn't get it out through the hole. As he was doing so, a bullet from Hank's rifle narrowly missed his hand. The creature withdrew its arm and retreated. Finally, just before daybreak, the attack ended. The embattled miner's waited for daylight then cautiously stepped outside guns in hand. A few minutes later, X spotted one of the creatures about 80 yards away, standing near the edge of the canyon. Taking careful aim, he shot three times and watched as it toppled over the cliff and fell down into a gorge 400 feet below. As quickly as they could, they got out of there, heading for Spirit Lake, Washington, and leaving $200 in supplies and equipment behind. They never returned to claim it. But the interesting part of this is that Beck, the guy who experienced this uh, and wrote about it, um, he said of these eight men they are not entirely of this world i was for one always conscious that we were dealing with supernatural beings and i know the other members of the party felt the same beck believes the creatures now known as sasquatch or bigfoot come from another dimension and are a link between human and animal consciousness they're composed of a substance that ranges between the physical and the psychical something something one more than the other depending on the degree of materialization. Because of their peculiar nature, none will ever be captured, nor will bodies ever be found. And that, of course, is uh, what has happened. I mean, despite Pierre's story about... uh, Although, you know, we can't dismiss the possibility that one has been found or something, some unknown creature that doesn't fit into Darwin's theory has been found, but whatever, appearing in your local newspaper with nice pictures and a video uh, on YouTube are pretty slim, given uh, the threat that such a discovery would pose Mm. to mainstream science and orthodoxy as it goes here on this planet.
5: Yes, well, I think it's not mutually um, exclusive, and uh, there is some more about this quest for the real identity of the Yeti. Recently, DNA tests were conducted on some uh, unidentified hair, allegedly belonging to the Yeti. And um, the professor of molecular biology at Oxford, Brian Six, who, uh, who conducted this uh, test on uh, this unusual bear hair. And uh, when the samples came back, one of the most promising hair samples, bigfoot samples from around the world, it appeared that this were It was DNA from another bear, from a bear, but not as we know it. Actually, it was an exact match for an ancient polar bear that died in Svalbard, up up Norway, at least 4,000 years ago and probably more like 100,000 years ago. So does it suggest that it's an old bear, maybe, or maybe an ancient bear? Or maybe it suggests that uh, the DNA of an ancient bear was used this new kind of creature, Bigfoot.
1: Um, the, go ahead. the follow-up
4: to the uh, story Pierre told before that about the body they allegedly found and then put on display, it ended up being a con- becoming, like all of these other stories, a yeah. controversy because sure. somebody then came in and was able to show plausible evidence that it wasn't real. And then at some point it was switched with something else and so on and so forth. My point being that in all cases, even where sincere researchers try to apply scientific analysis to them, the phenomenon has a weird way of eluding.
5: Yeah, what, what, anything ap- approaching material verification? What's happening that slips uh, away? Uh, after Sanderson made his expertise, his detailed examination of the corpse, he asked the owner of the corpse. To check it again to make uh, x-rays and detail analysis and uh, the owner declined and said he had a works model made and everything everything could be conducted on the works model mm. and so again the smoking
1: gun was not found like as you said in, the memory, in every other cases the smoke from that smoking gun blew away the, into the mist of
4: that that story about uh, the Cabin Shootout, yep. it reminds me of a really, really harrowing account from Carla Turner. I think it was the event that, that turned her on to the subject. She was a schoolteacher at the time or something like, like a school administrator doing her thing. And, and then either some neighbors or relatives, I'm not sure, uh, had this awful encounter where night after night, I think for about a week, They were visited by something like a craft and beings came out Mm -hmm. and terrified them. I mean, they would surround the house. There were lights, Mm -hmm. weird things going on that just terrified them. It was like a house full of kids. And the natural response of, I think, the father to defend them was to shoot at it. Mm -hmm. And this just
1: made it worse. made them mad.
4: They, They ended up, I think they did end up going mad. Mm. They needed a lot of psychotherapy and in the process, that's where she became involved, Carla Turner, and she learned about hypnotherapy Mm. and started studying the subject. And she ended up attracting, well, attracting, whatever way you look at it, a lot of harrowing cases, Mm. really traumatic cases. Mm -hmm. She just went right in there
1: to the deep end and Mm -hmm. said, what is going on here? Mm -hmm. Well, just on the mechanics of it, I know it's very hard to, uh, for anybody given what we've already said about it, to try and pin down if there is any, any kind of a nuts and bolts aspect to it but one thing that's always mentioned with these creatures with UFO occupants, alleged occupants, um, is that there's very often a smell, a very strong and foul smell associated with them, people often uh, liken it to sulfur or rotten eggs or some rotting flesh or garbage or something just really bad smell associated with these things and you see that time and time again but one other uh, aspect of these kind of encounters is as i just read in that account of the the gold miners was that the noise the thumping kind of booming noise that they heard repeatedly that they said they thought it sounded as if there was a hollow drum in the earth somewhere and something was hitting it now I'm just going to play a little excerpt from... This is a a reading from John Keel's book, The Mothman Prophecies, uh, and it'll lead me into a little pet theory, and you can take it for what you...
2: Gwendolyn Martino and her daughter returned from Europe in January and visited the Christiansons a few days after Tiny rode off in his darkened Cadillac. At 3 a.m. on January 13, 1967... Gwen and Connie, who were sharing a room, were awakened by a loud sound seeming to come from directly overhead. The sounds were distant at first, like someone hammering on metal with a rubber mallet or possibly walking over a metal surface. The noises grew steadily louder until they were deafening. The whole house seemed to shake, Gwen said. When she started to get up to investigate, the sounds stopped instantly. As soon as she was back in bed, they began again. The two women debated whether they should wake up Ed Christensen, a heavy sleeper. Gwen started to get out of bed again, and again the noises stopped. Finally, they faded away. Two evenings later, Mr. and Mrs. Christensen returned home to find their children in a very distraught state. They had heard the strange hammering sound again followed by heavy footsteps crunching through the thick snow outside the house. Connie's 19-year-old boyfriend was present, and he had looked out a window in time to see a tall figure hurrying away from the house. It was wearing a long, white cape, and when it reached a five-foot-high fence, it leaped effortlessly over it and disappeared on the other side. The next morning, Ed Christensen examined the area for footprints, he found a set of large human tracks deeply embedded in the snow, leading to the fence and continuing on the other side. These footprints went on to another building some distance away and stopped abruptly at the wall of the structure. There were no other footprints around the building, an old abandoned shed, and the witnesses were puzzled as to where the person could have gone. Like our hairy monsters, little green Martians and Mothman, the caped intruder had vanished into nothingness.
1: So the relevant point there is this sound that these people heard before having this bizarre experience with some kind of a strange entity, humanoid creature that is unknown to most people that behaves in very strange and frightening ways. Again, in that uh, excerpt from... The Mothman prophecies. The sound was a metallic sound, like someone hammering on a on a metal table, and it kind of ties in with this booming sound. Uh, there's also I don't know if anybody has read the uh, there's a book called Hunt for the Skinwalker. It's about a series over many years of bizarre uh, events taking place at a ranch called now the Skinwalker Ranch in northeastern Utah. Skinwalker was a name that um, the Native Americans in the area had given to this thing that they had known about for many years uh although it was more than just one thing there was a series of bizarre experiences all very closely related to the kind of stuff that keel talks about and it included a bit of everything almost uh the the people who owned the ranch who moved into it uh and you know to their to their dismay found out that it was a bad idea. Uh, they were called the Gormans, and one night they were walking out around the ranch. This was in the, during the first kind of experiences that they had. They had seen something. They had seen the light, a light moving across the property, moving up and down over fences. They thought it was a camper van, and then they saw that it, when it got to the fence, it just kind of floated up, across, and back down again. So they figured that either a flying camper van or something else. So they were out walking one night, and this was just one experience, similar experience that they had in terms of what they heard. They said. Tonight there was no rain, and the Gormans chatted quietly as they walked. Suddenly a loud metallic sound came from their right, cutting through the nighttime stillness. Startled, stopped abruptly. Both had acute hearing. A few seconds later, they heard the noise again. It sounded like metal being banged on metal, and it seemed to be coming from about a hundred feet above them in the darkness. Uh, This was immediately after... Or immediately before, I think, they saw, either before or after they saw uh, a, something very, very strange on their property. And when I read all of these accounts, and there are many different accounts of this, and they all seem to coincide with this uh, this idea of a, there being some kind of a metallic, booming, scraping noise associated with high strangeness and UFO phenomenon. And Uh, I pretty quickly um, thought of something that we've talked about before. probably know those are the sounds of the strange noises in the sky that have been plaguing the planet in many different areas uh, over the past, what, probably three years now, maybe approximately, uh, when they were first reported. But I think some of them actually go back uh, quite a bit longer than that, but just spotty Mm here and there. Yeah, about 2009. But even before that, I think there are some YouTube videos of people saying that uh, just here and there, but in terms of it becoming well, more intense and much more widespread, of course. Yeah.
4: J- John Keel has, has catalogued them going back to the 8- yes. 18th, 19th century. Yeah, but a- the trumpets
1: of Jericho and the trumpets of Revelation. Yeah, absolutely. But one of the interesting things, it's just a piece of trivia, is that some of the sounds that you heard there were heard over Chelyabinsk uh, about 18 months before the meteorite uh, that exploded over Chelyabinsk earlier this year. It was in September 2011 that these noises were recorded. Uh, they thought it was interesting. So the question being that now you two have to answer is what? How does this translate to if it does uh, a kind of uh, the appearance of uh, UFOs and uh, bizarre creatures? and uh, because it's very often associated with them, and also what relevance does it have to these strange sounds that we've been hearing uh, of late um, in the past few years, but in the absence of, as far as we know, in the absence of any high strangeness. Are they related, or am I just, you know, delusional?
5: There's a possible explanation. There's a possible correlation. It's tentative. It's not sure, but... Colin Kay, an Australian, uh, Australian physicist, showed that electrophonics i.e., the sound produced by, uh, in some cases, by uh, meteorites, they can be produced as well by auroral and earthquakes,
3: <clears throat>
5: are basically extremely low-frequency waves that are being transdu- transduced by a pair of glasses by some rocks in the ground by any kind of transducer okay because extremely low frequencies are not audible they are they're outside the ear range, hearing range of humans now, Colin Kay explains how those ELF are generated he say that um, meteorites, or borealis some kind of solar flare, some kind of uh, cosmic disturbance creating instability, resonance, unusual patterns in the geomagnetic field, i.e. the field, the magnetic field of the planet Earth and now a tentative explanation to correlate window photos, UFO phenomena and those uh, trumpets of Jericho-like sounds that both are connected to a disturbance in the electromagnetic field and um, another element that would tend to, that is going this way is the Philadelphia experiment because the way this US ship disappeared for minutes was after subject, subjecting, subjecting it to a very powerful electromagnetic field and indeed according to witnesses the ship disappeared for a while it came back, but when it came back, some of the crew members didn't come back. Most of them who came back turned totally crazy, and some of them came back within the structure of the ship. I, their body was mixed with the walls, with the floors with this, of the ship. So electromagnetic field, electromagnetic disturbances seems to be a common denominator to those seemingly unrelated events. Electromagnetism.
1: Yeah. So electromagnetism is what's going on. I, I don't, <laughs> it might not be the root cause,
3: but electromagnetism
5: might be one of the consequences of uh, window opening. Mm-hmm. It might not be the, the very fundamental process that leads to those uh, events. Well,
4: Mars Jessup was another researcher. And he gathered a lot of data from the 19th century. And he found, he plotted UFO slash high strangeness events on charts and graphs and compared them over time. And he found that um, there was a noticeable flap around the time that the Great Comet of 1843 appeared. And he didn't quite get to asking the question but you could see where he was going in tracking environmental events with UFO and other high strangeness events of course they didn't have well they actually did the first flying saucer mentioned was in 1866 so it's not a 20th century phenomenon uniquely Um, there's also John Keel was also cataloging things over time and he found that things occurred in I suppose cycles and they occurred in clusters and they occurred with environmental events so you might get an outbreak of tornadoes that would jive with a particular ufo flap
1: well there you go that then also ties into kind of what we're saying it ties it it's tied directly to global warming is that what you're saying because clearly well what what global warming is really about or what's really going on in terms of our climate And the weird weather we've been having—the tornadoes, the hurricanes, the um, typhoons—in terms of solar radiation or cosmic radiation interacting with the planet, and how it might disturb the electromagnetic something.
4: Well, the thing is, something around the planet. It's a good model to start from, but we still come back to the specific question here of the strange sounds, so-called sky noises over Charyabinsk occurring 18 months before but I think what K was talking about was the electrophonic sounds of an incoming body so it happens more or less at the same time that the object is seen in the sky 18 yeah. months before is something else um, yeah but remember in
5: key reasoning there are two factors there is the source electromagnetic disturbance i.e. aurora borealis cometary body earthquake and there was also the transducer and the transducer is location specific so what it might suggest, I'm not sure that's the definite answer, but what it might suggest is that in Chelyabinsk, maybe in the ground there is a transducer something that transforms those electromagnetic extremely low frequency disturbances into audible sounds so maybe within eleven months apart there are two uh, sources, maybe two different sources, that led to the activation of this local Chilabinsk transducer. But let me go back to this correlation, this possible correlation between electromagnetic disturbances and strange phenomena. John Keel, him again, mentioned three cases, very old cases actually, where there is a strong correlation obviously between lightning strikes and uh, window faller. In eighteen fifty six AD, yes. Eight, no eighteen fifty six not 1856. six. eight fifty six? eight fifty six. Yeah, eight fifty six AD, sorry. During a storm which filled the place with such darkness that members of the congregation could hardly see each other in a church in Trier, Prussia was suddenly invaded by a dog of immense size.
3: <coughs>
5: Second case in the church at Andover, Hans, England, on Christmas Eve, 1171. It dashed around the altar just as a priest was struck by lightning from within the church and killed, a gigantic pig-like thing. A monstrous pig that was reported again and again in a long series of perplexing cases. And third cases, third case A Tudor historian named John Stowe recorded the following in the 16th century. In the reign of King John, thunder and lightning killed many men and women and children, burned cornfields and fishes of strange shape armed with helmets and shields like armed men were caught, only they were much bigger. Yes, you heard correctly, despite my ify accent, giant fish clad in armors.
4: Of course, when it comes to tales from the times, nowadays people can go, well, whatever they were. It's it's like Chinese whispers. By the time it reached down to us, of course, it changed a little. But of course, today we've got, well, not so much today, but certainly in the last 40 years, an increasing number of crop circles, for which there's no known explanation. Of course, the phenomena is just ridiculed or people try to imitate it and say, look how I made my own. Obviously, they're man-made. But we have the idea here that there's something part natural, part directed, where you suspect that whatever intelligence is behind some of these phenomena is using the natural and sort of natural slash supernatural forces of nature to make some of these things manifest so for example you get clusters of UFO events happening on certain days of the week John Keel discovered that Wednesdays are the high point for UFO appearances and I think Tuesdays are the lowest it pretty much goes from Wednesday it's a peak and then it drops off and comes back to Tuesday and then it starts again that's a weekly cycle and then there was a monthly cycle. And then over a year, you could plot things as well. 1966. And that, that's got you thinking, "Why well, that's
5: sort of a natural beat to it. There must be something. And locations as well. You have this time cycle, and you have some locations that are very prone to strange phenomena.
4: But it's still, the jury's still out because Keel also noticed when you had a UFO flap that is when maybe there were a hundred reports in one night from across the U.S. which he was mainly studying. They would only appear in maybe three states. And within those states, they would only appear within certain counties to the point where they actually stopped right at the county boundary, the border. And there was nothing happened in the next state or, the next state or county at all. But it freaked out everyone left of the line. <laughs> mm-hmm. So like, that suggests us
1: there's something that was aware of man-made. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's interacting directly with human consciousness yeah. in some way, and that's why it becomes extremely problematic in terms of trying to <clears throat> find some <clears throat> objective reality into the, to these things. <clears throat> I don't doubt that there is, but ultimately the true reality, I think, goes beyond uh, physicality because the phenomenon itself suggests that based on all the experience and the way these things manifest and appear to just... I mean, there are videos of UFOs, i.e. flying saucer type craft, appearing. Actually, what's the opposite of dissolve? Uh, Manifesting. (laughs) Yes, manifesting. Appearing. uh, It simply grows out of nothing in the sky to become a UFO. Sits there for a while and then just shrinks doesn't move anywhere, shrinks into invisibility. Now, you could say it's it's cloaked or de-cloaked, but it seems to grow and shrink and grow uh, as it appears and disappears. Um, So, yeah, I mean, you know, there's a theory that I had, and I'm just going to throw it out there as well, about meteorites, because uh, John Keel mentioned um, the way that these things tend to uh manifest or materialize and he watched he saw many of them himself and had reports from thousands of other people Uh, he says that in many instances the witnesses had clearly seen the objects in the process of materialization or dematerialization a glow is first observed usually a reddish glow marking the emergence of the object from the invisible band of the spectrum into infrared and then into the narrow band of visible light or if the object is passing through the visible band to the higher frequencies, it is cyan, a bluish green, before it fades into blue, which is hard to see at night, and then ent- enters the ultraviolet range. So when I read that, I thought of meteorites as well in terms of how they're seen in the sky and whether or not uh, our question in past uh, shows about meteorites and... Are they tracking them? Aren't they tracking them? How are there so many? The idea maybe that these uh, fireballs, which have been abundant in our skies over the past uh, few years, at an increasing rate, as uh, anybody can check on the American Meteorite Society website, the the graph just has spiked up over the past um, seven or eight years. Um, The idea that maybe they're not trackable because in a similar fashion to... The UFOs, in quotes, these things originate directly in our atmosphere and then travel through it. They don't enter our atmosphere from space. In the same way that extraterrestrials don't travel through space and time for many, many years or, you know, from light years away to get here to bring a message of hope and love for the population, that they simply appear here instantaneously and disappear instantaneously. That maybe fireballs may have a similar kind uh, of reality or nature to them. And there's another similarities. A similarity now
5: that you mentioned the, the two cases, UFO and meteorites, It that the seem in both cases to be an influence exerted by the observer. Many reports mention that some witness saw it, some other witness nearby didn't see the UFO. And in the case of meteorites, we mentioned this uh, famous case of this uh, guy from Serbia or Bosnia who brought meteorites on his house, maybe six or seven times.: Yeah, so yeah, that's quite interesting. by the way, this, uh, and this notion of uh, frequency change, because uh, what you described Joe is a, a, a progressive change in frequency, from uh, lower than infrared to higher than uh, ultraviolet. mm. Mm-hmm. Uh, suggests that, yeah, there is a transition in frequency, and there is part of, during part of this transition, for a while, the entity is visible. And actually, the name specter, that comes from, from there. Mm-hmm. That's what John Johnski uh, suggests. A, a specter, it comes from the word spectrum, in the visible spectrum, because of this frequency change, this color change, reported numerous, numerously by uh, witnesses.
4: Mm-hmm. I- I think, Joe, you could be on a winner here. I don't
1: know. But <laughs> proving it, Neil, no, well, is a... Uh...
4: Proving or not, I don't care about proving because I'm just collecting data. And what I've noticed is that people see a lot of fireballs and they go, it can't be a fireball because it was moving too slow. Or they say it can't be a fireball because it, I saw it change direction. Or it can't be a fireball because I heard it. Now, you've given an explanation of electrophonic meteor, suggesting that again, we're speculating well, there is a guy called Kay who's researched it, but he also is kind of feeling around in the dark because actually the sound most reported by people um, perhaps unaware that a meteor has caused an explosion in the area is that they heard a thumping noise. Is it the same kind? I don't know, but we come back to this something noise I myself experienced with with you, Joe, when we heard this strange sound that we thought was something falling on the roof above,
3: mm.
4: and others reported exactly the same thing
3: mm-hmm.
4: and then we speculated that well, it might have been an overhead fireball explosion
3: mm-hmm.
4: sure enough, there was a report about it the next day but uh yeah, I think they're very. I think if, if, if there's a top candidate for High Strangers, then fireballs, meteors, mm-hmm. comets... I mean, we don't know what comets are. We know what they're not, mm-hmm. which is well, what NASA tells us they are.
1: At least they can be observed way out in space. Uh, I know asteroids and meteors can be observed in space as well, but I'm just thinking in terms of um, this increase in, in the fireballs and meteorites in our atmosphere that have also landed on the ground, you know, and where they come from and why no no one's talking about them, no one in officialdom is talking about this increase. I mean, it's right there on that semi-official uh, uh, American Meteorite Society. Uh, it's not piquing anyone's interest. It's not um, making anyone sit up and take notice, apparently, at least not officially. they are not talking about it, so I don't know why, you know.
5: Here we're reaching a a fundamental question about the nature of our reality as mentioned during previous shows it seems historical records strongly suggest that there is a strong correlation between cometary, high cometary activity periods and periods of strong oppression. so are comet's only bodies governed by Keplerian laws, by gravity and physical, uh, mechanical laws? Mm. Or do humans exert some influence on those uh, seemingly uncorrelated un- events, un- correlated with a human psyche, human mind? That's, uh,
1: well, it's kind of interesting that in what we've just talked about uh, in terms of the UFO phenomenon and window fallers and strange creatures and there being a direct interaction between the observer and the thing being observed and each are mutually molded and shaped by that interaction of consciousness uh, it brings us back to the idea of uh, you know our entire reality being a, a function or created by human consciousness and um uh you know it ties the ufo phenomenon to meteorites and fireballs and cosmic catastrophe in terms of destruction of the planet uh, at times when the mandate of heaven i.e. when is lost i.e. when you have a corrupt regime and power across the globe but this brings on cosmic catastrophe and destruction for the human race and for, for the inter- most of the planet there's obviously a, a a consciousness connection there. Uh, there's something going on with human consciousness, with with human awareness, or the lack of it, let's say, that brings this on. And, I mean, because it's not just about a corrupt elite, it's the fact that people are apathetic or acquiesce uh, in this corruption and, and bring on their own destruction in that way. Uh, so the two are, are linked in that sense, uh, in this overarching idea that it really is all about uh you know your level of awareness, and uh, your 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 con- your consciousness in, in the sense in, in every level in terms of are you conscious about what's going on the planet, are you aware? Are you giving credence? Are you giving uh, <clears throat> objective reality its due? Are you recognizing it, or are you uh, caught up in an illusion? I mean, someone who's caught up in an illusion who interacts with uh, UFO phenomenon, or a UFO, or uh, uh, a spaceship and projects all sorts of things onto it will get exactly what they want, but they'll be fooled because they're projecting their own subjective uh, ideas and imaginings onto something that is willing, only too willing to engage in in that kind of a, an illusion to your own detriment. And in the same way, people imagine that the world is fine and there's corrupt politicians, but it'll all change. And they ignore the fact that there's this increase in fireballs, there's increasing. in... Uh, chaos on, on, a, on a climate level, all of these signs and they're ignoring that and projecting uh, an illusion onto it that everything is fine. I mean it's all about the projection of illusion versus what we all should be doing which is standing up and taking stock and recognizing the objective reality. I mean what do you expect if you just bury your head in the sand you're gonna get, you're gonna get a meteorite on the butt.
4: <laughs> <laughs> I think we need to, here we're talking about something we've suggested, which is that it's a collective suffering that sends out a signal and or is simply picked up by the planet and it manifests as environmental stress that's creating these so-called earth changes and climate change that we're experiencing. Now that suffering is fundamental, it seems, to what is, whatever is behind uh... the so-called UFO phenomenon many abductees have reported this and the people who have studied it have come to the same kind of conclusion someone who predates uh... John Keel someone who John Keel admired in turn very much was called uh, Charles Fort and he long before the days of the internet of course at the turn of the 20th century, he was gathering stories from all over the world, news clippings, just odd things. And he called it, well, he called a book after it called Damn Data. Namely, there are events like high strangeness, like we've been discussing, that just don't seem to fit anywhere. They've been discarded, explained away. In the end, I'm going to quote from one of Kewel's books here, In the end, Charles Ford recognized the subtle warp and woof of human history when he stated, I think we are property. Someone owns this earth. All others warned off. The gods were at one time very real, and the directives to mankind were not initiated out of concern for the human condition, but calculated to protect the earth itself. Man was caught up as the pawn in some dark and forbidding forbidding celestial chess game. Events that seemed totally senseless to one generation would suddenly acquire important meaning several generations later. We tried to rationalize our predicament with inventive theologies and cosmologies. We rewrote history until it matched our ideals and concealed our often ugly motivations. Our true history became myth and our myths became our substitute for history. And for John Keel then, did his own studies of tens of thousands of stories the conclusion he came to was a pretty funny one but it's got some very serious implications namely that whatever is behind all of this you can call it a cosmic trick if you notice that it would you know it would play with people a number of one case that comes to mind is where contactees in the 50s were told that We're communicating with you because we have a special message we want you to tell the others. And of course, people will be like, wow, me? Okay. Those that fell for it anyway. And they would often set them up by predicting an event for them. So on such and such a date, this will happen in New York City. And it happened. And the guy created a bit of a stir because maybe he'd warned some people. So next time there were like 10,000 more people listening to what he's going to say, well, what was the next prediction? And then he would give it. But it didn't happen.
3: <laughs> yeah,
4: And maybe the third time it was an accurate prediction and so on. There's this toying
5: with people. And there is a... Human beings tend to make shortcuts if a higher entity gives you a, a true prophecy. You tend to go to reach some conclusions too quickly. And you think, yeah, he was able to give me good predictions, so it's a higher being, it's a, a good being. Mm. But uh, you can have a high, higher being that is malevolent and that will use truth when it suits him in order to lure you, to make you be- believe and have confidence in this uh, being that will trick you even better after giving this truth
1: prophecy mm-hmm. so, yeah uh, i mean cosmic tricksters maybe i never really liked that description although it fits in certain areas but the the stories and the history the, as far as we can get the objective data uh, relating to this phenomenon uh, the word trick isn't strong enough um, I could, i'll give you one example uh, well, I could give you much worse examples, but I'll give you one example. This is in West Virginia, near Point Pleasant. On the night of March 5th, 1967, a Red Cross bloodmobile was traveling along Route 2, which runs parallel to that to the Ohio River. Bull Schertzer, 21, and a young nurse had been out all day collecting human blood, and now they were heading back to Huntington, West Virginia, the van filled with fresh blood. The road was dark and cold and there was, a ver- there was very little traffic. As they moved along a particularly deserted stretch, there was a flash in the woods on a nearby hill and a large white glow appeared. It rose slowly into the air and flew straight for their vehicle. My God, what is it? the nurse cried. I'm not going to stick around to find out, Scherzer answered, pushing his foot down on the gas. The object effort- effortlessly "'swooped over the van and stayed with it. Scherzer rolled down his window and looked up. "'He was horrified to see some kind of arm or extension "'being lowered from the luminous thing "'cruising only a few feet above the bloodmobile. "'It's trying to get us!' the nurse yelled, "'watching another arm reach down on her side. "'It looked as if the flying object "'was trying to wrap a pincers-like device around the vehicle.' Shirts are are poured on the horses, but the object kept pace with them easily. Apparently, they were saved by the sudden appearance of headlights from approaching traffic. As the other cars neared, the object retracted the arms and hastily flew off. That's um, fast food, meals on wheels, Um, you know, because there is... um, obviously the whole topic of cattle mutilations and also which are invariably drained of blood and people seeing these kind of blights uh, around at the time that many cattle were subsequently found dead with all sorts of incisions and holes cut in them and drained of blood. And there's also a lesser known Mm -hmm. um, (coughs) case or cases of similar things happening to humans. So um, on the topic of whether or not these things are benevolent. I think there's a decided decidedly big no uh, answer to that to that question. And cosmic tricksters, I'm not sure I quite get it.
4: I was yeah, I was thinking in terms of
1: I know, but this is I mean that's I'm just disagreeing with Keel's description of it. Mm. I think he was quite he didn't. I mean, he didn't have access to all of the information, sure. uh, all of the theories, at least. And obviously, it's difficult for many people to go to where we go and have gone. And Laura has gone uh, before anyone else and has stuck with it um, since then. Yeah, but
5: it's a bit, it's full uh, <clears throat> realization, but obviously
1: evidence tends to suggest that we are not on the top of the food chain well that's the question we asked at the beginning of the show uh, or that the title of it, the blurb for the show was are we at the top of the food chain well if there's if there's things in this reality that as evidence suggests there is and has been for a very long time that can appear and disappear at will and can manipulate humans and large numbers of humans uh, take them away never return them exactly. um, do things to animals and to human beings that are uh, horrifying and also, you know, they come <laughs> come in the company of other bizarre creatures that terrify human beings uh, at will as well and are, and are impervious to uh, human weapons. Well, then all of that combines to suggest that, yeah, there's something above us uh, that has been around for a long time and we are definitely not at the top of the food chain. And what we see for
5: below in the food chain, you see the third density, so first density, you have vegetables. In second density, you have animals that eat the vegetables. In third density, you have us, humans, and we eat animals from second density. So, in fourth density, there might be what we call higher beings who eat humans. What do they eat? Well, blood, or serum, or negative emotions, or a mix of salt and, uh, Well, according to the C's, blood
4: plasma. Well... And this isn't their main sustenance. This is where it gets a bit tricky. They don't substantially rely on farming people for food. The main substance would be emotions, specifically negative emotions. This is this is the the main substance for them. But occasionally, there are cases where abductees have reported uh, that people are taken, eaten, cut up on the butcher table
1: baby sliced and worse well the the predominant maybe because it sticks in people's memory but i think it's also uh the case in most ufo abduction experience whether that's a physical abduction or whatever it is where people disappear for several days and come back uh having with a story to tell uh it's almost always not a very pleasant story and the one that has gained um uh, come into popular kind of awareness is the whole idea of being examined, you know. Uh, and I'm actually, you know, I'm <laughs> in one sense, I'm glad that that has uh, has actually kind of gained traction more so than the than the Space Brothers' Love and Light. The idea of that when you're abducted by aliens, uh, such as they are, um, that not very nice things happen to you. You know, you're put on a table. Examinations, all that kind of stuff. I mean, a good movie to watch on that. There's a book about it as well. It's called Fire in the Sky. Uh, there's a movie called Fire in the Sky based on the book, and it's about an abduction experience, and it kind of portrays that uh, quite well. Yeah. Um, but again, um, as we mentioned, it's you know, this isn't happy territory um, in 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 the sense of you know really looking at it. I mean, back in um, there. Were, 1994 in fact the very first Cassiopeia transcript uh, just offered this information um, <clears throat> where Laura asked Bob Lazar refers to the fact that aliens supposedly refer to humans as containers what does this mean answer storage for later use question used for what 94% 94% of what of all population what do you mean all our containers 94% will be used used for what consumption. You mean eaten? Consumption. What do you mean by consumption? Ingested? Consumed for ingredients. Ingredients for what? New race. Why are humans consumed? They are used for parts. We don't understand. How can humans be used for parts? We prototype. The vats exist. Missing persons often go there and especially missing children. How do we protect ourselves and our children? Inform them. Don't hide the truth from children. How does truth protect us? Awareness protects ignorance and dangers. Why tell children such horrible things? They need to know. Are the aliens using our emotions and energies? Correct. And bodies too. Each year each earth year, ten percent more children are taken. Do they suffer? Some. Bits of children's organs removed while they are wide awake. Kidneys first, then feet next. Next, jaw examined on table, tongues cut off, stress tested, pressure placed on heart muscle until it bursts. Why are you telling us this awful stuff? Well, the answer was already given. Awareness protects. Protects. Dangerous. it's
4: harrowing but it can it makes it makes sense i mean look, look what we do to get foie gras
1: exactly if you're going to posit the idea that we are not top of the food chain and as pierre kind of described there is a chain then look at and, and below us uh, are animals in the animal kingdom we we are humans and we eat animals look as you say what particularly in this modern corrupt system, look at factory farming and the way animals are treated in that sense. I mean, they're, okay, the very fact that they're eaten may be horrible to some people, that they are tortured essentially for years sometimes before they are eaten uh, is, you know, unconscionable. And if we're not top of the food chain and there is a level above us, then why would anybody insist that as above, so below, does not apply. But, that's, you know, we're not trying to say that... We're not trying to scare anybody. We're just saying this is a theory. This is an idea that's out there. It's borne out by some evidence. and um, But, again... It's,
4: it's borne out by a lot of the testimony of contactees who... Mm-hmm. who okay, they have their certain memories of what happened. Or they don't. Maybe they just have something wrong with them but they can't remember so they end up going to therapy eventually if they're lucky they'll wind up doing hypnotherapy and it's only by peeling back some of these screen memories that yeah. these things come out and the reason why we think there's a lot of traction to what they say is because they say a lot of the same things
3: mm-hmm. and
4: they all they, none of them know each other mm-hmm. and if you listen there are some videos on YouTube of People going through these sessions, and they are in—they're in—they're in a—in they're they're in a, in a slightly—I mean—they're in a hypnotic state, so they're not actually in the extreme pain. But you can see they're viscerally, you know, really shaken up by what they're describing. There's no reason to think that all of them are acting this out and making it up. Yeah. No.
1: <clears throat> yeah. And in terms of informing children, I'm not sure. I mean, obviously, you don't turn around. And read that as a bedtime story to your child or even sit down and tell them about it in that, in that way but I mean um, I think children need to be informed about the world in general and the state of the world in general because that kind of activity is reflected uh, in our world today uh, so simply you know, informing children and anybody, adults as well that don't know about the state of the world and trying to point out uh, what's actually happening on on our planet Uh, not in terms of necessarily the UFO phenomenon but in terms of the corruption and the the greed and the brutality and the inhumanity being perpetrated by uh, a corrupt elite a psychopathic elite against ordinary human beings I mean that certainly is the first place to start and that may be essentially a a facsimile of that kind of an awareness you don't need to go into the gory details about you know aliens putting people on tables and stuff but I mean all children should be made aware of the, of the world they live in and, and the state of the world they live in. I mean, none of them should be imbued with any kind of delusions about uh, happy fluffy bunnies, you know, skipping through the grass and kind of stuff. When that's not what's happening around them because they're going to be, you're making them into food by instilling illusions and delusions in them about the state of the world and lying to them. And things, information can be disclosed progressively Absolutely.
3: in a
5: specific form according to the age of each one, to the maturity of this one, of each one. It's not black and white.
4: Laura has often said, who needs aliens when you have psychopaths? And indeed, on this level, it's well documented that a lot of psychopaths engage in this kind of stuff and more. I mean, there are talks, you know, there's stuff about cannibalistic Mm -hmm. behavior. There are these stories about all kinds of meetings with children
1: involved. Mm -hmm. We've got pedophile networks in Absolutely. high places. Forget are... about aliens. I mean, we're not, at, we're not at the top of the food chain yeah. amongst our own species. Yeah. If you allow for the idea of there's, there being an interspecies predator known as psychopaths you who have taken over the world, they are uh, you know, essentially animals in human form, yeah. but evolved animals in human form. They're, they're predators on humans, so don't even go beyond hyper dimensions or anything. <laughs> we are not at the fo- top of the food chain amongst yeah. our own species. There is a species above us uh, if only in an overt kind of physical way, i.e. they are in positions of power in governments, etc. around the world, and they prey on people and prey on children uh, as much as anything else. And
5: uh, I think those two topics, higher malevolent beings and psychopaths, fit together quite well. If you imagine this higher malevolent being, being having this kind of uh, negative emotion form, that humanity is, and I suppose, wanting to minimize the efforts, the best agent to maximize pain generation on planet Earth is by introducing psychopaths. Otherwise, you face a paradox: how human beings, without the, the higher my level and being factor, without those, this psychopathy factor, how can you explain that as human being? After centuries and centuries of progress, of research, of community knowledge, we still have today this amazingly high level of pain, suffering, and negative emotions.
4: Yeah. It's it's something that we've often wondered about. War, jealousy, greed, covetousness, uh, covetousness. I mean, these, these, are not, these things are not natural to people. People left to their own devices move away from them because their yeah. natural inclination is towards just living well by others, cooperating. The, something that bridges the two possibly is, is this is a quote from a, a QFS, Quantum Future School study that was put together on Psychopaths about 10 years ago. We are acutely aware that cryptocracy, that's the state of a corrupt elite running the show, is not a phenomenon confined to our present time, in quotes. It's a transmillennial evolutionary strategy that, step by step, has brought us to our present position. What emerges in the present day is just Machiavellian diversion that focuses focuses the attention of those who are easily deceived. This is reinforced by the clappers in the audience and there seems to be an entire army of psychopaths among us whose job it is to act as vectors of attention and direction as Wilhelm reich wrote why did man through thousands of years wherever he built scientific philosophical religious systems go astray with such persistence and with such catastrophic consequences the answer lies somewhere in that area of our existence which has been so heavily obscured by organized religion and official science and put out of our reach. Hence, it probably lies in the relation of the human being to the cosmic energy that governs him. The same question is posed by Castaneda's Don Juan. I want to appeal to your analytical mind, Don Juan said. Think for a moment and tell me how you would explain the contradiction between the intelligence of man the engineer and the stupidity of his systems of belief or the stupidity of his his contradictory behavior. Sorcerers or wise men of old believe that the predators have given us our systems of belief, our ideas of good and evil, our social mores. They are the ones who set up our hopes and expectations and dreams of success or failure. They have given us greed and cowardice. It's the predators who make us complacent, routinery and egomaniacal. In order to keep us obedient and meek and weak, the predators engaged themselves in a stupendous maneuver. Stupendous, of course, from the point of view of a fighting strategist. A horrendous maneuver from the point of view of those who suffer it. They gave us their mind. Do you hear me? The predators gave us their mind, which becomes our mind. Through the mind, which is, after all, their mind, the predators inject into the lives of human beings whatever is convenient for them.
1: And people have always interpreted that in terms of uh, you know hyperdimensional kind of uh, you know evil archons or whatever uh, ruling this planet. That it's all a non-physical type of thing. But and that may be the case. But you see how it maps perfectly to the idea of psychopaths mm-hmm. and the polarisation process where you have this contractile, extremely greedy uh, voracious appetite for, for just feeding on uh, on, other, on other human beings and exploiting them. Uh, you see this among the psychopathic individual and psychopathic in positions of power and they spread those that morality in quotes throughout the society that they govern and that they have control over. So I mean you just just listening to that and 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 imagining it or interpreting it as the predator's mind or the predator giving us their mind. Sure, that's happened. Look at the way the entire population has been programmed by the media and by corporations. I mean, it all applies directly to uh, psychopathy and power. Something, Something you said at the beginning of the show
4: concerning who does or doesn't see a UFO or some demonic entity so is the person hypnotized into seeing it well hypnosis is the default setting
3: Mm -hmm.
4: in this context all are asleep and all are in this hypnotic state Mm -hmm. onto
1: which the predator projects
4: whatever whatever it is that they know the outcome will be because they know how we're programmed
1: well it also ties into Gurdjieff's uh, comment about the magician uh, coming along and hypnotizing the sheep uh, and convincing them that they're that they're all sorts of wonderful saucers, animals, eagles, and lions, lions, etc. When in fact he's just controlling them for later use, in the only way that a, a sheep and animals on this planet are used, uh, and human beings seem to be in the in a similar position, in in their own way. Is that, a ha- note? is that a happy enough note to, uh, w- we're sorry if we depressed anybody here tonight but um, we hope we give you something to think about at least and of course all of this is you know by definition you know, um, it's unverifiable but all of the evidence points to uh, what we've been saying being close enough to, to what's going on and everybody can think about it for themselves and make up their own minds and do their own research most importantly uh, and come to their own conclusions but uh, it might be an ugly truth
5: but that's uh,
1: very probably the truth and as the saying goes the truth shall set you free yes as uh, contradictory as that might sound uh, this particular truth yeah at the very least it will protect you and maybe ultimately set you free in some way or other anyway we'll leave it there for this week folks thanks to Genevieve for calling our quarter in. and but we've had uh, the usual gang of chatters all having lots of fun on our chat room um, we will be back next week with another show as yet to be announced so thanks for listening and until then see you next week have a good one bye 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 au revoir